Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 2nd, 2017, and before introducing today's guest, I want to share your 10 favorite episodes of 2016 as revealed by those who responded to our annual survey. Over 2,000 people voted, by the way, and I want to thank you all for participating, and I hope to do a bonus episode where I share some additional insights from the survey, respond to your excellent comments and suggestions. So thanks again. Here are the top 10. Uh, Number 10 was Angus Deaton on inequality trade and the Robin Hood principle. Number nine, Angela Duckworth on grit. Number eight, Terry Anderson on Native American economics. Number seven, David Otter on trade, China, and U.S. labor markets. Number six, Doug LaMob on reading. And number five, Matt Ridley on the evolution of everything. Number four, Chuck Klosterman on but what if we're wrong. And number three, Kathy O'Neill on weapons of mass destruction. Those three through 10 were pretty close together. They all got between uh, 14 and 17% of the vote. But number two and number one sort of stood alone. Number two was Thomas Leonard on race, eugenics, and illiberal reformers, which got 19.35% of the vote. And the number one episode is voted by you, the listeners, was Mike Munger on slavery and racism, which got an astounding 33.78%. You notice I use decimal points, but about a third of you thought that was one of the top five episodes of the year. And uh, I want to thank again everyone for voting, and I hope to do some more comments on that uh, on those results later. Now on to today's guest. He is journalist and author Tom Wainwright. He's a reporter at The Economist. His book is Narconomics, How to Run a Drug Cartel, which is our topic for today's conversation. Tom, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you. In many ways, your book's a tribute to economics. You look at drug dealers, wherever they are in the, in the supply chain, as a business facing the same incentives, competition, and constraints facing legal businesses. And I want to start with a mistake that you identify, or at least that you claim governments make in fighting the war against drugs, and that's the focus on supply. What What is that focus? What is gov- What are governments around the world doing to restrict supply, and why is it a mistake? Well, I guess if you think about the war on drugs, the kind of images that pop into your head probably give you a clue as to the answer to this. You know, the, the sorts of policies that governments have been carrying out now for some decades are the ones which see uh, police forces and armed forces trying to intercept drugs on their way to consumers. So that could be anything from the programs that have gone on in South America in which tons of weed killer have been dropped from airplanes and helicopters to to try to destroy coca crops in countries like Colombia, coca being the the raw material for cocaine, uh, to uh, operations in countries like the United States or in in, uh, here in the UK involving police officers trying to uh, arrest drug dealers on on street corners here. All of that is what I mean by the supply side. It's, It's the part of the business in which the drug makes its way from uh, an Andean hillside to, uh, you know, an American or a British nostril in the case of cocaine. Um, 
that's where our efforts have been focused. And, you know, it's, uh, it's not, not entirely a waste of money, but what I argue in the book is that there's some reason to think that they might have a bit more success. They might get, you know, more success for every dollar spent if they spend a bit more time focusing on the demand side. And by the demand side, obviously, I, I mean the, the consumption, if you like. So that the people who, we're talking about the people who actually take drugs, the, the, the part of the business in which the drugs are actually consumed. I think there's some evidence that if governments spent a bit more time and money trying to dissuade people from taking these substances and, and giving them the help that they sometimes need, uh, and, and, you know, in the stick they sometimes need as well to not take them, um, that might be more effective than just trying to intercept them on their way. It's such a bizarre thing, actually, when you stop to think about the way when, – when you said it, the way you said it, it, it just sort of jarred me. You know, the, the government should just stop people from wanting to do this, and it does raise a question, which I'm going to push to the side, but I, I want to mention it, that one could question why government is involved in this at all. Mm. Um, but let's stick with the question of efficacy uh, and effectiveness. Um, and I want to come back to the demand side because I think it's it's very interesting. But I want to stick with the efficacy of the supply side part. It seems logical. What we're going to do, uh, says the government or say the government officials, is we're going to destroy these plants. And that's going to do two things. It means there should be less of it to start with because there's they've destroyed some of it. And the second thing it should do is it should raise the price and that should discourage people. Uh, but you point out that both those are shockingly uh, or perhaps surprisingly ineffective. Why? Well, you're right. There's a bit of a paradox here. I mean, the people who say the war on drugs has been a failure, they're not entirely right. In some ways, actually, governments have been quite successful in eradicating crops. So, I mean, if you look at the um, cocaine business in South America, efforts to restrict the supply of coca leaf have, have you know, actually had some big successes. These, these days, every year, a gigantic area of land of, of coca leaves is eradicated. It's an area something like 14 times the, the area of Manhattan. Um, that's far more than used to be the case. Uh, people reckon that about half of all the coca leaves grown by drug cartels now are, are eradicated. So they have had some success. And yet, at the same time, we haven't seen any impact on price. If anything, if you trace the price of cocaine over the past couple of decades, during which all this eradication has been going on, it hasn't risen as you'd expect. If anything, it's fallen. You know, it hasn't changed very much. But if anything, the trend on the whole has been a downward one. Um, and it's, it's a bit of a paradox. You know, yeah, it's, it's surprising, right? I mean, if you saw this in any other market, you'd wonder what was going on. So I decided to try and find out a bit more about what was causing this. And I went down to um, Bolivia, which is one of the three countries that supplies cocaine, those three countries being Colombia, Bolivia and Peru. Um, and what I saw down there and what I read about the business reminded me of uh, a legal business. And the, the comparison that I draw in my book uh, is between the, the drug cartels of South America and Walmart. Um, and it's a, a kind of an odd comparison, and it's uh, worth making clear that there's no implication that Walmart has broken the law in any way. Um, but the thing that they seem to have in common is is that both of them arguably are examples of monopsony, in other words, a, a monopoly of demand. Um, if you think of Walmart, you see sometimes a similar phenomenon in which uh, you see, for example, a, a reduction in the supply of a particular good, let's say that there's a failure in the harvest for apples or something like that, you might normally expect the price of apples to rise. But magically in Walmart or indeed in other, any other 
a big supermarket which has that kind of purchasing power, the price often remains about the same. And the people who take the hit are the farmers. And the reason that Walmart or other supermarkets are able to do that is because they have this extreme buying power. Very often, they're by far the dominant buyer in the market. And so they're able to say to their suppliers, um, sorry, but this is the price and uh, it's the only price we're going to accept. The suppliers don't have many other people to sell to. So they have to take that price. The same thing seems to be happening in South America. If you go to Colombia or Bolivia, in any one area where the coca crop is grown, there's only going to be one drug cartel buying. It's not a proper competitive market in which coca farmers can sell their product to, to the highest bidder. There's really only one buyer in each area. And so if there's a failure in the crop, you don't see the normal market response that you would normally expect. You might imagine that the price would go up, but you don't see that. And that's because the cartels are exercising this monopsony power and telling the farmers, look, sorry, guys, but we're the ones who set the price and this is the price we're going to carry on paying. So it's not that restricting coca leaf supply has had no effect or that no one is paying. The problem, I argue, is that the people who are paying this price, the people who are suffering, aren't the drug cartels and it's not the consumers either. It's these farmers in countries like Colombia who are earning a dollar or two a day. And they seem to me to be not the people really that it's in our interest to be targeting. And yet the evidence seems to be that they're the ones who are paying for this, uh, this program. So I'm a skeptic about that argument for a bunch of reasons. I'll just lay them out briefly and you can respond. Sure. And then there are other parts of the of it that I find utterly fascinating. We'll get to those. But uh, in, in my experience talking to Walmart suppliers, you're certainly correct that Walmart puts a lot of pressure on its suppliers. I don't think they're anything close to a real monopsonist. There's lots of other places, grocery chains, other retailers that these folks can sell to. But they certainly do want access to Walmart's market into Walmart shelves because they're very successful. They don't have a monopoly, but they're very successful. So what I've what I've seen is that Walmart relentlessly tries to squeeze cost out of the supply chain. So when they go to their suppliers and say, you know, we're only going to accept this price, we're not going to take a higher price, or we're going to we're only get, we're only wanted if you can get it to give it this for this lower price, what that does is it pushes the suppliers to innovate and to find ways to to cut costs and to do their work more efficiently. And I think that's a, one of the unseen benefits of Walmart, just things that are uh, being produced at, at lower cost and, and they're being enjoyed also by the consumer. So it's not like they're squeezing the suppliers. They're motivating the suppliers. Now, it may be different for the drug cartel. The drug cartel may actually have an actual monopsony through the threat of violence. And you have to sell to them. And if they say you're not going to get as much as you got last month, too bad. Uh, but so let's. Uh, that's my my first thought. My second thought, though, is is I think your much deeper point, which I agree with, which I hadn't thought of, and which is fabulous. Which is, in my mind, okay, the government restrains supply. Governments do around the world, but I mainly think of the United States. We restrain supply. We try to keep out supply. We intercept it at the border. We're constantly trying to do stuff. And we're encouraging other gov governments around the world to destroy uh, the cocoa bush or the uh, the poppies to, to try to keep the price high. And that we think – we hope will discourage – so is the argument – will discourage consumption. But as you point out – this is just so fantastic – the the price is so – the effect on price is so small. And it, that's just totally ignored in all the discussions. So respond to my monopoly, monopsony argument if you want, and then talk about why uh, these supply changes are so ineffective. 
Sure. Well, they're both great points. I, I think on the, the monopsony argument, I, I think um, the, the distinction between Walmart or indeed any other buyer uh, squeezing versus motivating its suppliers is uh, is a nice one and, and one that you'd have to question suppliers about whether they feel yeah. squeezed or motivated. <laughs> but I mean, your your general point, I mean, first of all, of course, you're right. Mon- uh, Walmart isn't a, a pure monopsony. I, all I mean by that is it's a, you know, in, in many markets, it's a dominant buyer. I think it's reasonable to say. But uh, you're, I think you're right that in many cases, it does lead to suppliers being more innovative. And indeed, we do see that to some extent in the drugs business as well. Uh, constantly um, in South America, the cocaine business is innovating. And when I went to Bolivia, I, I saw some of these new techniques. One of the things that they do uh, in the uh, sorry, one of the things that they do in the cocaine production business now is that they use old washing machines as primitive centrifuges to um, uh, complete the process of uh, extracting the active ingredient from the leaves themselves. Um, and whereas the laboratories that they do this in used to be based in the jungle, which left them open to um, being raided by the government, they now often put these labs in the back of trucks, which rumble around the jungle, not being captured. So yeah. there is, there's innovation in the drugs business, it just as in any other. Um, on the, the second point you raise about the, the price and, or rather the cost of the raw materials relative to the final price. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely right. And I try and spell this out a bit in the book by um, providing a few numbers, just to give people an idea that to make a kilo of cocaine, for example, you need about a ton of uh, fresh coca leaf. Um, and that ton of coca leaf in Colombia is worth about $500. Now, by the time that's turned into cocaine in Colombia, it's worth perhaps more like $1,000. By the time it makes it to the United States, it might be worth fifteen dollars to $20,000. By the time eventually it's sold in tiny portions to a consumer, that uh, that kilo is worth the equivalent of about $100,000. So there's a very, very big increase in, in the price as you go along the supply chain. So imagine if those eradication efforts are very effective in raising the price of coca leaf. And as I've said, I think there are reasons to be sceptical about whether they are. But imagine they were so successful that they were able to raise the price of the raw material, the coca leaf, by 100%. They were able to double it from $500 uh, per ton to $1,000 per ton. That is transferred eventually, let's imagine, to the consumer. But by that stage, it's such a tiny proportion of the final price that it makes very little difference. Imagine that $500 being transferred to the final cost of the kilo in the United States. It means that kilo is worth $100,500. So in other words, a very, very effective program, which has doubled the price of the raw material, has increased the price of the final product by less than 1%. Or just to spell it out using a a legitimate industry, which I think helps to clarify the point. Imagine if you were trying to raise the price of artwork and you said, okay, well, we want to try and raise the price of paintings and the raw material of paintings is paint. And so what we're going to do is we're going to try and raise the price, drive up the, the cost of a box of paints from $50 to $100. We're going to double it. And on that basis we reckon that the price of this million-dollar painting is going to double from a million dollars to two million dollars. Obviously, that's not going to happen, right? At the very most, what you'd expect is that the artist might add that extra $50 onto the price of his painting. You're not going to double the price of the final product necessarily by doubling the price of the raw material if the raw material is a sufficiently small part of the eventual price of the finished product. So I think that's what we're doing in drugs. We're 
often making the mistake of thinking that if we drive up the price of the raw ingredients, whether that's coca leaf or opium poppy or whatever, we're going to have a big impact on the price of the finished product. Very often, it seems that's not the case at all. I mean, that's just fantastic. And I, I, we, I want to talk about that some more. But before I do, you know, one of the things is uh, I, I thought about reading your book is you, you talk about some of the extraordinary ways that governments in the, the three countries of Bolivia, Peru, and what's the third one? Uh, Colombia. Colombia are trying to get rid of, of, of cocoa plants. And you think, well, what's, how hard can it be? So in some of those countries, I think it was Bolivia in particular, it's like they really don't like the whole idea of eradication. Uh, I think you, tell, you said the head of Bolivia, at least when you're writing the book, was a former cocoa grower. And the, cocoa is, is a fairly mild thing in its raw form. And uh, people kind of resent the idea that we're, they're supposed to crack down on it. The tragedy here is that, you know, that in doing so, they're not really having much effect. But the other part I wonder is, are they really trying very hard? Is it really that hard? Because the plants can't run away. It's not like the dealers who can, you know, get in their car and speed off. The plants are kind of stuck in the ground. I'm just wondering, is some of this just for show? Do you have a feel for that? How come they can't destroy more of it if they really want to? It's a good question. I, I think it probably is quite hard. I mean, if you imagine eradicating these these fields of coca plants, it, it's not as if they're just being grown in big fields on the edge of big cities. I mean, we're talking about the Andes Mountains here, which are you know not not all that well explored in some areas. We're talking about very very remote parts of the countryside um, where these coca plants are grown secretly, and you know they blend in with with the rest of the local vegetation. But the governments there have got some quite sophisticated ways of trying to track them down. They fly over the areas um, with planes and, and take photos of, of the land down there. They use satellite imagery increasingly. And with technology improving, it's getting gradually easier and cheaper over time. I was looking at some images that were shared by the United Nations, uh, which is involved in this work, showing the kind of satellite photos that they take of um uh, of the coca growing areas and the improvements in the resolution of these photos just over the past few years uh, it really does make it easier to spot the coca fields as opposed to the you know let's say the banana fields or whatever um, but it's not all that easy you know imagine imagine using a photo taken from space and trying to spot the difference between one type of plant and another you know, it's, it's not not quite as easy as you might think um, and then, of course, in many of these areas, like Colombia, for example, for many years, those areas have been guarded by guerrillas who are using everything from line, landmines to machine guns to rocket-propelled grenades and so on. So it's this isn't easy. Um, and I think the, the success that governments have had in eradicating coca plants in some of these countries is in many ways quite impressive. And that's why I think it's such a tragedy that they've been engaged in this activity, which I think is ultimately, in economic terms, pretty futile. So the other part I want to explore this observation that you made about uh, that restraining supplies more is like trying to raise the price of artwork by raising the cost of paint is to talk for a minute about the uh, increase in markup that happens all along the supply chain. So I think some people find it perhaps puzzling that the raw material that the final price isn't closer to the price of the raw material. Uh, certainly, once it gets to the United States, say, uh, and it doesn't have to be processed in any uh, in any more in other ways, you'd think the price would be something similar, and it's not. There's a huge markup, and you'll often hear uh, you'll often hear that um, 
you know, they diluted along the way. And, and of course, this is an illegal market, but you might wonder about competition. Why isn't there more competition that would keep the markup down? And I, what are your thoughts on that? It's a good question. And, and you're right. The the biggest markup, if you look at the prices, which I quoted earlier for cocaine, you, you'll see the biggest markup isn't in Latin America or even on the way to the United States. It, it's in the United States itself. That's when a kilo of cocaine goes from being worth perhaps $20,000 to perhaps more like $80,000 by the time a dealer gets his or her hands on it to more than $100,000 by the time it's sold to the consumer. So the, the really big jump is in that stage between the, the sort of importation of very large quantities and the distribution of very small quantities. Um, as to why that is, I, I think that the reason that I would come up with is that this is the part of the business, which it may not sound like it, but it, it possibly is the hardest and, and riskiest part of the whole the whole business. Imagine the, the job of the person who has to receive, say, several tons of cocaine in a port in Los Angeles or over the border in um, uh, you know, a place like, um, I don't know, San Diego, for example. They have to receive a, a gigantic quantity of this stuff and distribute it into much smaller quantities, give it out to the mid-level dealers who then take it all over the country. This is a, a job which involves dealing with a large number of criminal contacts. Now, that's difficult in itself. Building up that number of contacts requires a, a long period of time in the game. It's also highly risky because, of course, the more people you deal with, the more risk you're exposing yourself to of being either exposed to law enforcement or um, attacked by, by rivals. So there's a very high risk. And we're talking again about a country here, the United States, that has, despite what people might sometimes say, it has what's by international standards an outstanding uh, law enforcement agency and you know very hard to escape from prisons, a, a justice system which works pretty well. Compare it with a country like Mexico, where the police don't often do their job properly, where jails, as, as we've seen in the case of El Chapo, are, are quite easy to escape from sometimes. Um, and that's why the the risk undergone by these people is so high and why it's, it's you know, you, you have a relative lack of serious competitors in this part of the business. So that, that would be my best explanation. The, the, the big, big price increase that you see there is because that actually is the part of the business that is hardest to do. Um, and so the number of people uh, able to do that is, is smaller than one might think. Well, I think it's absolutely right, and it's it's not just the number. It's to encourage or for to have people in the business, they have to have an incentive to take those risks. Those risks are large, 10, 20 years in prison if you're caught. I don't know how long it can be. That's plenty. Uh, and so the market's going to require compensation for those risks if people are going to end up doing it. If it's worthwhile at the end to – you can find – buyers for the product, you're going to have to get, earn a price from those buyers that covers those costs. And the costs, I think it's always important to remember, costs are not always it, – it, it's, it's an incredibly important example in, in economics is that the price of raw materials is a very small part of the product often. And this is just a dramatic case where the real costs, the biggest costs are um, totally unseen. It's the risk of being caught. Uh, you don't see it in time of people you know, can, creating the product and, and fashioning it. Um, talk about the risk to you as journalists. You tell a number of scary stories. Uh, of course, you have an incentive to make them dramatic and scary, but I think they really were <laughs> dramatic and scary. So talk about um, what you did to find out what you did in the book when you were and why you were scared and 
tragically talk about talk about the tragedy of the journalists in some of these poorer countries who get killed because they report things that drug dealers don't like. And uh, the situation in San Juarez that you mentioned. Um, so talk about the safety issues. Sure. Well, I guess dealing with any illegal business involves some risks that you might not undergo in, in other kinds of business reporting. I, I mean, I I think the, the first thing I want to make clear is that the people, the journalists who undergo the real risks and, and the ones who are really heroic in the work they do aren't the foreign correspondents like me. It's the local journalists, because if you're a Mexican journalist in a city like Juarez writing about the drugs business, the, the people that you're writing about, the criminals that you're writing about, know exactly who you are and they know where you live and they know where your family lives and they know that you can't just hop on a flight back home to Mexico City as I used to do. Um, so they're the ones who really face the serious risks. I think as a foreign correspondent, you're in a relatively privileged position. Uh, attacks on foreign correspondents are, are much rarer than attacks and murders of, of local correspondents. Um that said, I mean, researching the book and writing stories for The Economist was, um, you know, sometimes moderately hair-raising and uh, interviewing some of the guys who I feature in the book was uh, a different experience from some of the usual business interviews that I do. So I went to interview the head of one of the two big gangs in El Salvador, um, a guy named Carlos Mojica Lechuga, uh, and he was in jail at the time, which, why, which was why I was able to go and help. interview him. Yeah, exactly. Well, you say that. I mean, El Salvadorian prisons aren't always much safer than, than being on the outside. But, um, but no, because of that, I was able to go and see him. And um, I went to interview him, and he was this extraordinary guy, covered from literally from head to toe in tattoos. Um, and we sat down and talked in this prison cell, which he effectively used as his office. Um, and he was a menacing kind of guy, you know, and he was in there for carrying out some pretty grisly murders. But the interesting thing was that when I sat down and started talking to him, really the conversation was was a business one. And the kinds of questions that I found myself asking and some of the answers that he gave reminded me actually of speaking to regular business people in some ways. Uh, were you scared in that situation? In that one, you, there are a lot of stories in the book where you're where you're on the street and it's somewhat at risk. In this situation, being that it was in a prison, were you uneasy? Yeah, I was. I mean, as you say, it's in a prison, so it's a relatively controlled situation. But Latin American prisons are not terribly safe places. The the murder rate inside them is often literally higher than the murder rate outside them. Um, and so when I was in this jail cell and the um, prison guard brought the guy in and took off his handcuffs and shut the door behind us. Uh, I, you know, I, <laughs> I was, uh, I was sweating and I, it wasn't just cause it was so hot in there. Um, so yeah, it was, it was an unnerving experience and I'm not someone who has covered this kind of stuff before. I, I, I went to Mexico expecting really to write about regular kinds of business. I thought I'd be writing about NAFTA or uh, the tourism industry or, or fun kind of things like that. But it just so happened that when I got there, uh, the war on drugs was taking off and the biggest story in town was was the drug war. Um, and it soon seemed to me that this was a interesting business story. So that's what I ended up writing about. Um, but for me, it was a very different experience and a, a fascinating one, but at times uh, also rather a frightening one. Why do you think he spoke to you in that jail cell? What was his, what was he, what was motivating him? Was it pride? Did he like the idea that The Economist was going to cover his activities was it just he felt he was supposed to or the prison might be tough on him if he didn't cooperate? How voluntary was his cooperation? 
I think that perhaps all of those things to some extent, I'm sure Vanity was involved um, up to a point. I think giving an interview to the international press about your sprawling criminal empire is, is probably something that, that would have flattered a guy like that. And he, um, you know, he, he had a real swagger to him and quite enjoyed joking. And, uh, you know, on, on the way out, he told me that he was a great admirer of the, the gangs of the East End of London. Um, <laughs> he was, uh, he was a, a character. created rapport with you. That's so nice. Yeah, well, yeah, no, yeah, charming guy, yeah. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, I, I think part of the reason that I was able to get in and see him, because the government often doesn't grant interviews to, to journalists with, uh, with prisoners, was because at the time this uh, truce was going on between the two main gangs in El Salvador. Now, that's since broken down and the murder rate there has rocketed back up. But at the time, uh, the two main gangs, his gang, which is, is called the 18th Street Gang, and its great rival, the Mara Salvatrucha, had signed an agreement uh, which was a, effectively a kind of non-aggression pact in which they had obviously decided that from their point of view, a period of collusion made more sense than the one of competition in which they'd previously been engaged. And so the government was trying to get some uh, favourable coverage of, of this scheme that they were involved in, trying to get the gangs mm. to talk to each other. So I think they were more willing at that stage to allow journalists access to these people who, you know, they're not normally great ambassadors for El Salvador, it has to be said, but at the time they were engaged in this experiment and, and willing to give it a bit of publicity. So I think that's how I was able to get in at that stage. I think if you tried again now, you might find it harder. You tell the poignant story, going back to Juarez, of the newspaper writing the editorial, the op sort of open letter to the to the gang saying, what do you want from us after they'd killed some of their journalists? What, talk about how the gangs like to use public relations uh, and the cartels, which I found extremely interesting, and the role that the newspaper plays sort of Wittingly and unwittingly. Yeah, it's, it's an important part of their business, really. I mean, like other businesses, they care quite a lot about their public image, more than you might think. Um, and the reason for the cartels, really, is that they, in order to survive, they have to maintain a reasonable amount of support among local people. I mean, these guys make a living out of avoiding being captured, and that's much easier for them to do if local people aren't willing to report them to the police and, and tell the police about their whereabouts and so on. And so they do this in a variety of ways. Some of it's very unsophisticated, very blunt. If you drive around northern Mexico, sometimes occasionally you'll see uh, banners hung from uh, bridges above freeways, and they, they're hung there by the cartels, and they often say things like, you know, the Sinaloa cartel or the Gulf cartel or whatever – um, is, you know, is, is an honourable cartel which only traffics drugs and, you know, this other cartel engages in extortion and, and rape and violence and kidnapping, but, you know, we don't do that. We're, we're the good guys and it's extraordinary that they Shocking. do this. But they, but Yeah, but, but they, they seriously think that this will help to improve their image. Now, that's pretty blunt, but something they do which is, I think, sometimes more effective is that they intimidate or bribe local journalists into giving them favourable coverage. And, and this could take the form of bribery or it could take the form of threats. You know, they have this saying, plata or plomo, silver or lead, in other words, a, a bribe or a bullet. And they employ that with journalists just as they employ it with public officials. Um, and the, the rates of violence and kidnapping and disappearance against journalists in Mexico are, are frightening. Um, I mean, that's partly, as you, as you document, the inability of the police to maintain law and order and to stop anything like these things from happening. Uh, there's a lot more power in the cartel often than in the state. 
But what what kind of why would they bri- talk about why they bribe? Why would they want a good? What's a good story? What would be a positive story about a drug <laughs> cartel that would appear in a local newspaper? What are they hoping for? Well, I think there are a couple of things they do. Sometimes what they want is an absence of news. So if they've done something particularly gruesome that they don't want people to know about, they they will tell journalists not to report this, and there'll be consequences if they do. Other times they want exactly the opposite. There are times when cartels want to really strike fear into the hearts of their rivals. And so they will uh, make sure that journalists do give a particular massacre as much coverage as possible. There's one interesting case that we sometimes see in Mexico where cartels will deliberately do something outrageous on the turf of a rival cartel. You know, they'll dump a whole load of headless bodies in, in the middle of a busy street in the middle of the day, for example. And they'll do that in precisely in order to draw police and army officers to that city, which is a city run by a rival cartel. They call it heating up the plaza. In other words, it makes it harder for a rival business to carry on doing business in that area because there's a greater presence of police officers and and, uh, and soldiers. And so sometimes drug cartels will enlist the help of journalists in doing this. They'll say, look, you know, we, we've just carried out this massacre and, you know, we want you to give it plenty of coverage. Um, and sometimes that works. But they, they've got even more sophisticated ways of getting the public on side. And one of the other things I discuss in the book is corporate social responsibility. And this might sound totally out, outrageous. Yeah, I mean, it's not something that you might expect from the Sinaloa cartel, but it's quite a big part of what the cartels do. And for people who might have been watching series like Narcos on Netflix, which is all about Pablo Escobar, um, it, that is a good example of the kind of corporate social responsibility that these guys sometimes engage in. Again, it's crucial to them that they keep the public on side to avoid being reported and captured. And if you look at the life of Pablo Escobar, he did that very effectively. He spent what was for him, you know, tiny proportion of his fortune on things like building sports facilities, public housing. He'd give out pensions. He'd do all kinds of things, give out presents at Christmas time. And all of this stuff meant that in certain uh, neighborhoods of Colombia, he was more popular than he ever deserved to be. You know, although this was a guy who had uh, caused the murders of thousands of Colombians and, and set the country back many years, his funeral eventually was attended by thousands of people. And you see the same thing now in uh, Mexico. Someone like Joaquin Guzman, this guy better known as El Chapo, who's just been extradited to the States. What, the last time he was arrested, there were protests against his arrest in his home city of um, Culiacán. And it, Many of those people will have been there because they felt they ought to be there. But some people, there's no doubt, do see cartel leaders as being kind of, you know, romantic outlaws who are uh, not not such bad guys after all. Um, And much of that is because of these corporate social responsibility activities that they engage in, in parts of Mexico where the state is absent, where there's not very much in the way of a proper social safety net. These guys are there giving out small amounts of money to people. And it's entirely cynical. I'm not trying to defend them for a minute. It's, it's completely cynical on their part. But in some cases, it's very effective at getting people on side. Works for legal businesses, too. Uh, Indeed. As you point out in many other cases in the book. Uh, yeah, well, a lot and, of parallels. And the, the, in a way that, you know, you find often the dirtier the business, the more concerned they are about CSR. Sure. And, you know, there's no, their, clean up their image. Exactly. And there's no business that's dirtier than the illegal drugs business. So it's not surprising that they're so into it. So you have a fascinating chapter on uh, New Zealand, which sort of hit me out of the blue. Uh, New Zealand's really far away from a lot of these sources of, um, of 
drugs. So what have, how has the market there responded? Talk about the market for legal highs and uh, how poorly and ineffectively the regulatory environment has uh, tried to deal with it. Sure. Well, you're right. When you think of you know the great global centers of the illegal drugs business, you, you probably wouldn't think of uh, New Zealand as being among them. But it, it is an interesting case because, as you say, it's you know it's out in the middle of nowhere, and so it's not really worthwhile for regular drug cartels to bother shipping very much there in the way of cocaine or heroin or other drugs that people around the world, or, you know, many people seem to enjoy taking, um, and so. New Zealanders have come up with a different solution. They, they make many of their own drugs, and it's become a great centre of, uh, of synthetic drugs. Um, to give one example, the, the number of meth labs there, methamphetamine labs, the number of labs discovered in New Zealand each year is greater than that in any country in the world after, I think, the United States and Ukraine. Um, and for a tiny, tiny country like New Zealand, that's extraordinary. Um, it's because they make many of their own drugs there. And so they've started off with drugs like meth, but as drugs like meth were banned, people there moved on to different varieties. And, and eventually New Zealand became a center of what are known as legal highs. Um, legal highs, are, they're a strange part of the drugs business. They, they sound like they're probably you know, one of the safer types of drugs, but actually it's quite the opposite. They're very often among the most dangerous types because the only reason that these drugs are legal is because they're very quickly evolving new synthetic drugs that are made in labs and which haven't yet had the chance to be banned by governments. So it's not that they're legal because they're safe. It's they're legal because no one has yet got, got around to outlawing them. Um, and New Zealand has become a, a leader in this. You know, many of the most popular legal highs were first invented and first popularized in New Zealand. Um, it's become a, quite a big industry there. And you point out that because of this sort of arms race in banning and then innovating and banning and innovating, uh, it, it's actually made it a lot harder for uh, to produce safe, safer drugs. And that, that encouraged New Zealand to have an FDA equivalent, a Food and Drug Administration, for recreational drugs and not just pharmaceutical drugs. And that did not work out so well. But talk about what they tried and why it failed. Sure. Sure. Well, the reason they did this was, as you say, the, the evolution of these legal highs meant that with every step people observed, the, the drugs were getting more and more dangerous. You might normally expect that with um, development of ordinary products, the people making it would improve the recipe every time and make it you know, a better one for consumers. But with the drugs business, that's not really what's happened. The, the way that things have worked is that every time a new legal high is invented – eventually the government gets around to banning it. And so the manufacturers will tweak it slightly. They'll move a molecule here and there. Hey, presto, they've got a new drug which isn't yet banned. And so they'll start selling that. A few months later, that will be banned. They'll modify it again and, and bring out a new one and so on. Over the years, the various different iterations of these drugs have in many cases become more and more toxic. And so synthetic drugs that people were using a generation ago, like MDMA, which is the active bit in ecstasy, have given way to sort of mutant varieties of MDMA, which are, you know, in some ways do a similar job, but which are more dangerous. And so the New Zealand government recognized this and they came up with this plan. They thought, okay, rather than playing this game of cat and mouse, this game of sort of catch up with um, the drug suppliers, what we're going to do is do things exactly the opposite way around. We're going to say, okay, if you come up with a legal high, if you come up with a mind-altering substance, we will 
allow it, will license it, as long as you can prove that it's not dangerous. So if it alters people's mental state, if it gets them high, that's fine. We're not going to ban it on that basis. We'll only ban it if it actually does them harm. And this was, a, you know, it, it seemed to me like quite an interesting approach. You know, it seemed like a way of overcoming this kind of cat and mouse problem that has existed for many years in, in well, in, in all countries. Um, but the, the program hasn't got off the ground. And the, the, the reason that it hasn't is a, a very frustrating one. It's that the, the FDA equivalent that you talk about said that in order to license uh, one of these legal highs and, and be confident that it wasn't harmful to humans, it would have to first be tested on animals. And this, of all things, of all the possible objections that people might have to legalise drugs, this was the thing that failed to make it through the New Zealand Parliament. There were several members of Parliament who were animal rights activists, and so they voted against this part of the programme. Well, they and didn't so, want to lose the votes of their constituents, their animal constituents. No, I'm kidding. They obviously had <laughs> constituents who also cared about animals. Uh, that's why, sure. presumably why they were animal rights people. Got carry on. Sorry about that. I, I don't know to what extent they were representing their constituents, whether animal or human, but for whatever reason, they voted against. And so New Zealand now has the very frustrating situation of having this this regulatory apparatus, which is set up, but which can't yet do its work because it hasn't got permission to do the animal testing that you would have to do before licensing any drug for, for use on human beings. So it's an interesting idea, which has yet to get off the ground, but I don't know, could, could possibly be a model for other countries in future if other countries find, as most countries, it seems, have found, um, that stopping legal highs is is uh, very difficult. I think it's um, – I wonder if it's really a, a very likely scenario down the road just because uh, it's the economist in me always thinks that nothing's safe. Things aren't, things aren't either safe or not safe. Broccoli's not safe. Uh, many, many things can be shown to be related – Statistically, to causing cancer, many are shown even the same things to stopping cancer. Uh, anything in moderation is probably not so bad. There's going to be a level where the dose makes the poison and you're going to kill yourself. And so we have these mind-altering drugs, which inherently are doing crazy unknown things to your body and your head. So I'm not sure that it's the strategy of safety is going to be the uh, a very reliable one. Obviously, it would be useful to the users to know – Oh, in 10 out of 45 cases, this this kills a person. Uh, so provide that information and presume it would be useful. Maybe you'd want to use it to decide whether it's legal or not. But I, I'm always skeptical of these kind of things. But it's fascinating that they even got close to it. Sure. And uh, you're right. There's no such thing as an entirely safe substance. I suppose it would just have to depend on exactly how their rules and definitions were, were drawn up. You know, they they... I guess they could look at other existing drugs. You know, there was an interesting paper I read recently which looked at the ratio between an effective dose and a fatal dose of various different drugs, everything from heroin to alcohol to marijuana, and it laid them out. So with, I believe with alcohol, I forget, I think it was something like... It's in your book. I think it's 10 to 1. Is that right? So in other words... Or 20 to 1. 10 or 20 Maybe that was it. So like, imagine it was 20 to 1. You know, let, let's say two pints of beer is enough to get you nicely drunk. 20 pints might be enough to kill you in that case. You know, and with heroin, I think it's very low. It's sort of 7 to 1, 6 to 1, something like that, which given that, of course, the, the purity of illegal heroin varies so much, it's, it's very easy to overdose. Um, I, may, maybe the New Zealand model could um, set up rules along those lines. You know, perhaps they would deem safe anything with a ratio of 50 to 1 or less. Or who knows? Yeah, <laughs> but no, you, you could do it. That's interesting. There's always the purity issue too, but um, let's talk about people smuggling. Uh, I said it so cheerfully. Uh, let's talk about people <laughs> smuggling, but it's actually – it is a somewhat cheerful thing depending on what side you of the argument you're on. Uh, this is a case where 
uh, people pay to have uh, to get into America typically, say from Mexico. Uh, the people who do the smuggling are called coyotes. Um, talk about what has happened, how that market has changed, and why it still persists so effectively despite those changes. Well, I first got interested in this because it seems to me to be an example of the way in which cartels have diversified their business. Again, in the same way that regular companies you would expect would eventually begin to diversify cartels, it seems, are doing a bit of that as well. Um, And people smuggling is an obvious one for them to get into. You know, it relies on many of the same kinds of skills. Getting a person across the border, rather like getting drugs across the border, will often rely on bribing the relevant officials, both on the Mexican side and on the US side. It will rely on good knowledge of the border and where the easy places are to cross. It could rely on the use of tunnels, which in some cases have been used for smuggling both drugs and people. So it's an obvious one for cartels to get interested in. And one of the things that I found out while researching this chapter of the book was that in some ways, cartels have been handed a bit of an opportunity by by the border patrol, because it used to be, if you go back and look at the border as it was, you know, in the, in the early 90s, for example, it used to be that crossing the border illegally in some parts of the, uh, along the Mexican border wasn't all that difficult. In, in a place like Tijuana, people would sometimes run across the border in big groups and, you know, it wasn't that hard to get past the border guards. That, as we know, has has changed quite dramatically. If you go to Tijuana now, and look at the fence there, it's it's quite a thing to behold. I mean, I, I went there and you look at the old fence, which is a kind of six foot high thing that I reckon probably even I could climb over with, a, you know, standing on a, a box or two. And then you look at the new fence, which is um, a little bit behind it. And it's a, you know, a much, much bigger thing, topped with razor wire. They use ground penetrating radar. They use, you know, you've got guys patrolling on quad bikes with night vision goggles. It, it's, it's a much, much more difficult thing to cross than it used to be. And incidentally, it makes me wonder how the, the wall is actually going to differ from the fence in, in some yeah, parts of the border. It could be a semantic difference. Uh, yeah, it, it may be a wall <laughs> which is made of wire. And yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, but so anyway, it's, the, the point is it has become harder to cross the border, at least in, in some areas. The number of guards patrolling the border has increased uh, dramatically as well. And so what it means is that the business of smuggling people isn't the kind of amateur affair that it was in generations past, it used to be that these coyotes were amateurs who would get people across the border for fairly low fees. It wasn't a particularly difficult thing to do. Nowadays, it's hard. You know, it requires real knowledge of, of the best places. It requires them to, in some cases, be armed because of the security situation in Mexico. Um, it requires the use of technology, sometimes tunnels. It's a difficult thing. And so the fact that it's so difficult means that there's a gap for the relatively well-organized criminal groups in Mexico. This means the drug cartels. And there's evidence in Mexico that drug cartels now are playing a a bigger and bigger role in the business of people smuggling, which used to be something which was left to relatively small-time crooks. So it's a big business that has emerged for them, partly thanks to the actions, you know, unwittingly, the the well-intentioned actions of the American Border Patrol, which has transformed this from being an amateur criminal business into being rather a sophisticated one. And as you point out, it's much more expensive now to get across. As This is one of the effects of that higher vigilance. And yet people continue to come paying that price that's going to be more expensive now to get a professional rather than an amateur because it's more likely that they'll be able to succeed. And those people, again, have to be compensated for the risks they're taking and getting across. Uh, yet people still come. And why is that? 
Well, you're right. They, they still come despite the fact that it's more expensive. And the, the reason is that the fee that they pay to get it over the to get themselves over the border is is not very much at all compared with the relative gain that they can make from being employed in the United States. If you compare the average wages, even working illegally in the States, with the average wages in a, a part of rural Mexico, it, it's you know it's night and day. You can make in a day working in America what would take you you know a week or more to make working in in the countryside in a place like Oaxaca. Um, and so the fact that the cost of crossing has gone up from, I forget the figures, but they're in my book, you know, from perhaps a few hundred dollars to many thousands of dollars, it isn't really enough to put people off because the, the gains that they can make are, are so great. And in many cases, those fees can be paid uh, at least on a temporary basis by relatives who are already in the United States and perhaps have access to that kind of money. Um, and people also don't forget, people aren't just moving in order to make more money from working. I mean, in some cases, I spoke to women who'd just been deported over the border and had to leave their children behind in the United States. Now, the idea that those women are going to lose interest in going back because the cost of crossing illegally has risen by a few thousand dollars strikes me as, you know, not wholly plausible. They've got a huge incentive to go back, which is to see their families quite apart from anything else. So I think the idea that that you can, you know, dramatically deter people from making that crossing by simply making it harder and therefore more expensive is, is one that we should question. The evidence seems to be that people are just as likely to want to cross. It's just that they're going to have to pay more to do it. And they're more likely to pay a serious criminal outfit to help them do it uh, than they were in the past. So this idea that um, that we could do a better job, say, keep people from crossing, uh, it is a 2,000-mile border. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the cocoa eradication project. It's hard to understand why we can't make that border secure. I'm not sure a fence or a wall is going to make that happen. But it does raise the question, how is it that tons, tons of drugs are getting across that that border as well as uh, thousands of people? And you know, we recently had uh, Sam Canonis of author of Dreamland on the program. Yes. Where, you know, all his claim is that most of the heroin of middle America Middle American sized middle sized American cities coming from one place, which is Alisco. Oh, that's mm. the city, not the province, the city. And it's um how are they getting it all here? How how are they getting that much product across a border that is so uh seemingly patrolled? Do you have and the people who they need to get across to sell it? Did do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, when you talk about tons and tons of cocaine or heroin or any other substance or indeed people going across the border, it, it does sound extraordinary that these kinds of quantities are able to make it over without being spotted. But consider the volume of trade between Mexico and the United States, the, the volume of legal, legitimate trade that crosses the border every every day, every hour. And it's it's absolutely vast. When you compare the relatively tiny quantities of illegal drugs going over with the huge, huge quantities of legitimate commerce, whether it's cars or televisions or food or anything else, it, you're really talking about a needle in a haystack. A lot of you opportunity know, to try, too, yeah, to mix absolutely. that in. Yeah. You've got hundreds and hundreds of trucks crossing. You know, Imagine in each of those, they, they're absolutely laden with legitimate products and somewhere in there hidden, you've got a relatively small package of drugs. It's you know, For one thing, it's difficult to spot. For another thing, the kind of money involved in this business is so great that actually bribing someone isn't that hard. And, you know, 
we all know, or we, we like to think that we know about the corrupt Mexican police officers, but you know, there's corruption on both sides of the border too. And indeed in the UK, I'm not trying to say this is just a, a North American phenomenon, you know, law enforcement agencies all around the world um, have this problem. And you just look at the news and you'll see a, a sort of fairly regular trickle of uh, border patrol agents being prosecuted for their own involvement in smuggling drugs. You know, the money is such that it's fairly easy to bribe anybody. And bribing an American officer is going to cost a bit more probably than bribing yes, a Mexican officer. Um, but, you know, they, they have their price too. So the quantities going over the border, are, you know, they're, they're small as a share of the total trade crossing the border, which makes them hard to cross. And their value is huge compared with the salaries of the people in charge of trying to stop them, which makes it fairly easy to, to bribe those people into looking the other way. You had some fascinating observations about how the legalization of marijuana in a handful of American states is changing the production process. There's a lot there to talk about. Just Let's just talk about the economies of scale issue. Talk about how legalization changes that production process and uh, the threat that poses to the drug cartels. Sure. Well, it, it does make it very different. And again, this is rather like the, the border wall situation. That this is something that could change, you know, rather a lot in the next few years. We'll have to wait and see. But the, the legal process is quite dramatically different from the illegal process. If you imagine the marijuana manufacturing process illegally in the United States, you're talking about very, very small scale, relatively small scale operations. You know, sometimes people literally growing the stuff in their closet at home, you know, very, very small operations. Or in Mexico, you're talking about people growing the stuff out outside, you know, in, in relatively basic conditions. If you visit one of the places in a state like Colorado, where marijuana is now being grown legally, it's just extraordinary seeing how they grow the stuff. It's so high tech. They use all kinds of advanced techniques. They have probes measuring the acidity and alkaline levels of the soil. They, you know, they have halogen lights, which go on and off at, you know, exact times. They've got their laptops measuring the precise amounts of growth of the plants in different periods. You know, it's, they've really, really professionalized what until recently was a very amateur business. And it's not that surprising in a way. I mean, what the kind of skills that you need to survive in the illegal drugs business are completely different from the skills that you need to make a success of marijuana in the legal drugs business. So look at the illegal business. The kind of skills you need there are an ability to corrupt police officers, an ability to threaten or project violence, you know, skills like that, an ability to cross borders illegally. The kind of skills that you need in the legal business are totally different. You know, you want someone who knows what they're doing horticulturally. You want someone who's good at marketing. Uh, you speak to the people who are running the pot businesses and Colorado or, or Washington or any of the other states that have gone ahead and legalized. And you find these are business people like others. You know, they, they have MBAs. They're people who previously worked in agribusiness. And they've really transformed the business. You know, the, the average purity of legal pot in Colorado is about three times that of the illegal stuff that's smuggled in from Mexico. And they've got a whole range of new products. In Colorado, for example, you can get marijuana-infused drinks or chocolates or all kinds of different things. These are products that just didn't really exist before. You know, the, the cartels aren't in the business of making marijuana-infused iced tea in the way that these businesses are in Colorado. So it's transformed it. And the legal, very professional legal businesses are, to a large extent, driving the illegal sorts out of town. In Colorado, they reckon that now something like 80% of all the marijuana sold in the state is the legal variety. Um, 
And already it seems that the cartels in Mexico are, are suffering in this sense, and many of them are growing less marijuana and switching to other lines of business, including people smuggling, as, as we were talking about earlier. And the price, of course, has fallen. I mean, I, I have to confess, I'm one of the few people, I think, over the age of 60, I'm 62, I know two others uh, over, my, over my age who have not uh, tried marijuana. So I'm not, <laughs> I'm not advocating uh, trying marijuana or using marijuana. I'm against, very sure. strongly against mind-altering drugs. Uh, my mind's one of my favorite organs, so I, I try to kind of leave it alone. I don't like to take aspirin <laughs> that much. But um, one has to observe that the move from illegal to legality, which also was true in the Prohibition era in the United States when we went from legal to illegal and back to legal alcohol, uh, the customer gets served. You can debate whether the customer should be served, whether it's healthy that the customer has these preferences, but the quality goes up and the price comes down. So it's um, it's a beautiful uh, for an economist, it's a beautiful experiment. The thing I was struck by, though, in your write-up of this is that y- your, your description of visiting this processing plant, this giant arboretum or whatever you want to call it, greenhouse of indoor growing, uh, there was something secretive about it. It's not it's not marked on the outside. Uh, yeah. I, I lived in St. Louis for 14 years. Uh, Budweiser proudly has sure. a big plant with big signs and lots of tours. And why isn't that happening in marijuana? Why, why, is, why is it uh, sort of gray rather than, than out in the open? Yeah, good question. It's partly to do with security, I think. I mean, these yeah, facilities. <laughs> What's the security well, <laughs> issue? They're a legal business. You don't have to have a security yeah. issue if you're making iPhones. You don't well, say, like, because- let's not mark, let's not have a sign up front that we're Apple. You know, because <laughs> you know, it's really profitable. We've got to be careful. I don't get it. No. Explain it. Well, Okay. I, what, one reason is that the, the the legal status of the marijuana business is still a bit weird. So states like Colorado have legalized it, but it's still illegal at the federal level. And this means that, among other things, it's very, very difficult for these businesses to use banking services. Banks are very, very reluctant mm-hmm. indeed to uh, do business with these guys. And so if you go into one of these uh, marijuana shops in, in a place like Denver, you walk around the back very often you'll find a very, very big safe full of cash because this is a overwhelmingly a cash-only business. It's very, very hard for them to do their banking electronically. And I was speaking to the head of the, um, uh, I believe it was the Department of Revenue in, in the state of Colorado, and she was telling me that she has actually had to hire extra security people since legalization because she has to do so much business now in cash. So much of the collection goes on in cash that they're collecting very, very large sums of money each month from these businesses in cash uh, and and transporting it around, which they didn't previously used to do. And it's it, it seems odd to me, you know, there are various ways in which the reluctance of the federal government to legalize marijuana, which I you know I think is understandable. I, I don't think it's a kind of easy question at all, but its reluctance to legalize it in some ways is actually making the business more dangerous. The 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 cash side of it is one aspect. Another aspect which again, I mentioned briefly in the book, is is the regulatory aspect. You would have thought that when you're dealing with a brand new, you know, or at least brand new in legal terms drug, you would want an organization like the FDA to be involved in determining, for example, how much it's safe to have before you can drive. You know, these are difficult questions that no one one really yet knows the answer to. And yet the FDA, which is the most powerful regulator of, of drugs in the world, is sitting on its hands. You know, it's not involved in this stuff. It's not allowed to be involved in this stuff because it's still federally illegal. And so you have relatively tiny bureaucracies in states like Alaska 
trying to draw up these very complex regulations about how to test the purity of marijuana, how to, you know, how to limit the amount people can have before driving, all of these questions on relatively tiny staffs. Uh, and, the, you know, the, the expertise of organizations like the FDA is not being drawn on. And, and that strikes me as a mistake. So I think the, you know, what looks like a kind of cautious wait and see approach being taken by the federal government in some ways is actually quite reckless because it means that the rules which are being laid down now, which I expect are the rules which eventually all of us are going to end up following in, in some way, are being drawn up by, you know, relatively small, in some cases, inexperienced uh, state governments. Um, and I think it's it's a question, it's a serious and difficult question in which you might want the expertise of the federal government to be involved. Yeah, I have a lot of skepticism about the FDA, but I'm going to leave that to the side. Um, I <laughs> I, I want to make one just one quick point, then I want to close with a with a deeper point. The, 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 to hear your side of it, deeper question. The, the quick point is: you encourage demand side rather than supply side, which seems logical. I think the issue there is that it's very hard. I don't think we know so much. We we know how to burn down a cocoa bush, and we know how to set a big pile of of uh, marijuana on fire when we capture it. If you're the the, the feds. I think we're not so knowledgeable about how to get people to not want to take drugs. Uh, yeah. Do you think we should be more optimistic about that? And I would also add, it's kind of awkward because, it, as I said in the very beginning, it's not clear we want – I want the government trying to help people to do things that they want to do, stop people from doing things they want to do. I, I might prefer more private and, and more cooperative and voluntary programs uh, along those lines funded by people who um, – Maybe have different motives. Sure. Well, look, on, on the first point, you're right. The, the question of how to stop people wanting to take drugs is a tough one. And it's all very well for people like me to say, oh, you know, we want more projects to try and get teenagers to take less drugs. But how do you actually do it? Well, it's difficult. But there's some good evidence out there that actually these demand side interventions are more effective than some of the supply side ones. There was a good study done some years ago by the Rand Corporation, you know, the, the think tank, yep. in which they studied the impact of spending a million dollars on trying to reduce the amount of cocaine taken in the US. And they compared spending a million dollars on, first of all, trying to intercept cocaine in South America. And they found that for every million dollars you spend doing that, you reduce the amount consumed in the States by about 10 kilograms. They then looked at if you spend a million dollars trying to uh, dissuade teenagers in the States from taking cocaine, you can reduce the amount consumed by about 25 kilos. So it's, you know, a little more than twice as effective. And then they looked at if you spend a million dollars uh, providing treatment to people who are already addicted to cocaine, you can then reduce the amount consumed by about 100 kilos. So it's about 10 times as effective as trying to inter intercept the stuff in South America. So there's already evidence out there which suggests that the, the programs that we're doing on the demand side are more effective, you know, more cost-effective than the ones that we use on the supply side. And I agree, it's, you know, there's plenty more work to be done in determining which ones work best, and it, there's no very easy answer. But there is already some fairly straightforward evidence that shows that it's more effective than the kind of flying around the Andes in a helicopter school of drug control. Um, and then the, the second question you asked, I think, is a, a really, really tough one uh, about, you know, the, the extent to which the state should get involved in telling people, particularly adults, you know, people over the age of 18 or 21, what they can and can't do. Um, and I, I think it's, it's difficult, but most recently what we argued in, in The Economist, and we've, it's worth just 
noting we've been in favor of legalizing drugs for some time um, on the basis that it's the least bad way of, of controlling them. But I think the point that we made was that it's reasonable that the government should regulate and, and try to dissuade people from taking these substances because it's not always an entirely free and informed choice that people are making when they decide to take these drugs. It's not always entirely informed because, as you've said in the course of our discussion, the, the research on these subjects is you know, pretty murky, to say the least. And so it's not always a very well-informed choice that people are making. And I think you can also argue that it's not always a free choice either, because very many of these illegal drugs are, to some extent at least, addictive. Um, even marijuana, which is you know, not a drug that people generally think of as being fiercely addictive in the way that crack cocaine, for example, is. Uh, even marijuana does seem to induce dependency in a sort of fairly large minority of the people who take it regularly. Um, there's some interesting stats on this that people in when it comes to the alcohol and tobacco markets, people talk about the 80 20 rule in which about 80% of all consumption is done by about 20% of all users. And rather worryingly, we see that already in the legal marijuana market in the States. You see this 80 20 ratio going on in which a, a, you know, a, a minority of people consume a very, very large quantity. So, given that to some extent these drugs do seem to induce dependency, I think you can argue that it's not an entirely free choice that people are making. And on that basis, I think it is legitimate for the government to do things like tax these products to try to persuade them, people to, to take less of them, um, to ban advertising, for example, is one thing it might do, uh, to restrict the places in which they can be sold, I think is another. So, uh, you know, uh, my, my position after looking at this for a while is that legalization is probably the least bad way of regulating these potentially harmful substances, but it should be a pretty controlled type of legalization. It should be a, a pretty heavily regulated type uh, if we're to avoid making the same mistakes that we've made in the past with alcohol and tobacco. So my advice to, uh, to the United States and other governments like Canada that are just starting to legalize now would, would be to be pretty cautious at first, you know, legalize it in a pretty heavily regulated way to begin with. And if you then want to loosen those regulations, go ahead and do so. But you'll find that if you do it the other way around and try and tighten those regulations later, you might find it rather hard, as governments have found uh, in the case of alcohol and tobacco. So I, I think many, many more arguments to be had about this in yeah, future. I just want to respond to the point about people not being fully informed or free. And I, of course, that's true. It doesn't. It's, and it's true of chocolate and love and um, <laughs> uh, Twitter. I, you know, I've, there are a lot of things in life that are hard to to uh, avoid and stay away from that might not be so good for me. But I, you know, I think it's important in a free society that people have the opportunity to make those own decisions, particularly because. And people say, oh, that's an ideological, you're just a, you're just a libertarian. I am. But the real reason I – one of the reasons I argue that is that I don't have any confidence that the government is going to do it well. So you can make the case that there is a case for government intervention because people are, say, ill-informed or uh, imperfectly informed. Uh, and you can even make the case that providing information is not enough, that the government should go beyond that. But – you have to then assume that the government's going to do the way Tom Wainwright thinks they should do it, and <laughs> they don't. So I want to close with this point, which um, which struck me, and you didn't you didn't address it, but it 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 came to my mind as you uh, ended your book. You open your book with some of the common mistakes governments make, and you close your book with that point, and you give lots of. I mean, it's a fantastically interesting book, along lots of interesting uh, dimensions of this of these phenomena we're talking about, but you presume implicitly 
that the goal of government policy is to reduce the amount of drugs. And uh, maybe it's not. Uh, that's what they say it is. They say they're fighting a war on drugs. Of course, when you fight a war that spends a trillion dollars or so with little or no impact on, in fact, rising levels of, say, heroin death in the United States over the last 10 years, 20 years, you have to start wondering that maybe what they say is the goal is not actually the goal. That maybe the goal is just to destroy a lot of stuff, do a lot of dramatic public relations stuff. It doesn't really have an impact on on the phenomenon but uh, and keeps some people happy who profit from it, like the police and the, the people who provide all the machinery of the – of the uh, the night goggles and all that. They, they love that. It's just great for them. But I'm not so sure the goal is to get rid of drugs. In fact, well, on the surface, it looks like that has nothing to do with the goal. Well, so I, I'll I let mean, you have the last word, Tom. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Maybe I'm very naive, but I, I, you know, I've met a lot of the people who are involved in this war on drugs, which, you know, as I make clear in the book, I, I think is misguided. But it, my impression on meeting them on the whole is that they're people who are sincere in what they're trying to do and, and they're they're just doing the wrong thing but I, I i don't see it as being quite as cynical as as you think it is but i i think that one just one other thing i want to say you, you say that the implied message of my book is that the goal ought to be to reduce drug consumption and that's that's partly true but not entirely i think the goal ought to be to reduce the amount of harm done by drugs um and very often i think Fair that enough. will be done well very often that will be done through reducing consumption but in the case of marijuana legalization which i endorse with some reservations um i would personally be willing to accept somewhat higher levels of marijuana consumption if that reduced the amount of harm done by by the by the drug, um, and I expect that's what you will see. Actually, if if you legalize it, I find it hard to imagine that you won't see consumption go up somewhat. Um, but I think that's a price worth paying for a market which is properly regulated, um, taxed, and in which cartels, which cause so much murderous violence in Mexico and other countries, are put out of business. Well, I just want to clarify one thing. I said the the real goal of the government. I think that's the wrong way to think about it. I shouldn't have said that. There is no government with a goal. There's no central mind or brain that says, oh, let's do this work intelligently. Let's instead mm. it's an emergent phenomenon. There's there's the enormous complex set of emotions and desires of the people, some of whom want to take drugs, some of them like me don't. Some of them want people to be free to take drugs, some people think they should be stopped. Uh, we have all this emotional turmoil that translates into political action, that translates into a legal environment through the political complex political process. And so the people you talk to on the ground, you know, they're, of course they want to, job, they think their job is to do X, Y, or Z, but if they actually did it well, what they're trying to do, maybe they'd, there'd be other forces that would be set in motion that would start to counteract that. So I think it's very complex. I, I just, um, I think, I just want to Make the general point that it's wrong to think of governments having motives. And uh, so I, I didn't mean to say that, that the government wants to make a show of it. I'm not that cynical. A different <laughs> kind of cynicism, that the process itself isn't designed to lead to the outcomes that we write about as if they were designed that way. That is to get rid of drugs or to, to save you know, the American people or whatever. It's so much more complicated than that. I'm sure that's right. We, we can agree on that. My guest today has been Tom Wainwright. His book is Narconomics. Tom, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. 
For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.